Good morning and welcome back to the Thrive Subscribe Podcast. Uh, today we're going to be talking about some innovative uh, pharmacy practice ideas uh, and, you know, a kind of link back to some of the same issues and problems that we uh, in, in our pharmacies have been noting uh, over the years. Uh, some of the biggest challenges uh, that we've seen in pharmacy have been uh, that you know when a patient leaves a health system or a hospital or a doctor's office, uh, there's a big disconnect between that care and then what happens at the pharmacy level. Uh, and so today uh, we're going to you know talk to John Gregg uh, and talk about some of the innovative ideas of embedding pharmacists into clinics uh, to optimize care, both to improve uh, the physician's care of the patient, but also the pharmacist's care of the patient, uh, and the importance of, of uh, that integration and continuity. So let's uh, turn it over to Randy, who's going to uh, be talking to John. Good day, everybody, and welcome back to Thrive Subscribe. We have a guest today by the name of John Gregg. Uh, John and I have gone way back um, he had been very involved with uh, Health Mart um, with McKesson, where we were doing town halls and helping pharmacies transform their practices. He believed it in so much that uh, he became a co-founder of a company called Thrive Pharmacy Solutions, which was really trying to create new business models by embedding pharmacists in clinical practice. Um, John now um, is currently the McKesson for, with McKesson again. He's vice president for pharmacy retail operations and hoping to take all the experience that he has to help other pharmacies in the community setting um, transform their practices and look for new revenue sources with a, a new business model. So, John, I appreciate you coming on today. Absolutely. Thanks, Randy, for having me. Absolutely. So, John, you know, I, I love the uniqueness of your, your business model. And, and let me tell you why, because when we talk about embedding pharmacists into primary care clinics, obviously that's a very important role. But the other thing I have found out, too, is by community pharmacists working with embedded pharmacists within those clinics, we've done a much better job, both the, the clinic pharmacist and the, the community pharmacist, by sharing that information, working together to improve outcomes. So I do think, um, you know, getting more pharmacists embedded, but, you know, how do we um, connect the dots, if you will, between different pharmacy practitioners who are in different settings to really optimize the, the care of patients. So as you've made this, this change initially and became co-founder of Thrive Pharmacy Solutions. Can you tell our listeners about the business model and how it created new revenues beyond dispensing? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you the quick rundown of kind of what it was and how it got started and then where we evolved um, into. So we started, uh, my business partner and I started Thrive Pharmacy Solutions as an independent pharmacy that um, would provide dispensing services, but also had uh, pharmacists that were embedded in primary care clinics. Um, these primary care clinics, these physicians in this were all in, um, they were independent. Um, some of them had banded together, um, but they were still independent. They wouldn't work for a health system. Um, and it was a, they formed a clinically integrated network. And this network basically could go out and sign contracts with all the big insurers, you know, Aetna, United, Cigna, um, Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, for at-risk contracts. In other words, value-based care. And these uh, physicians were graded on that. And, you know, there was a couple of really progressive physicians in there that we had um, approached and talked to them about, hey, here's what a pharmacy can do for you. You know, a lot of them um, grew up with pharmacists working with them whenever they were in their residency or in medical school. So they, they understood the value of that, but they, were, they didn't quite understand where we would fit in 
um, into their value-based um, contracting. So, um, but they wanted to go forward with it and they wanted to do it. So we had to take that risk. We had to fund that initially. So we, we created a, a, a model that uh, the physicians would be able to refer patients that were um, at risk. So think people that are, uh, have a lot of comorbid conditions, diabetes, heart disease, heart failure, COPD, um, behavioral health, things that you treat with medications and generally speaking um, are at-risk populations. So what we would do is the physicians would see these patients on a regular visit and say, hey, you know what? This is a really good candidate. Um, um, let me refer them to my pharmacist. And initially how it started is we would get, actually have to go through the EMR to look for patients that were on the clinic schedule that day and send notes to the physicians to remind them. But as we got going, it became just part of their habit. And so then they would refer these patients to us. Uh, we would do a, many, a mini med reconciliation, make sure that everything was going right. Well, we had to make a few adjustments, um, make some suggestions to the physician. Um, and we did it in their native EMR. Let me just be clear about that. We didn't use our own system. We made all the suggestions and the notes in their EMR. That way it was one less system that they had to deal with. And it really helped with our buy-in. Um, and then after we did this med rec and got them all organized and set, um, we turned them over to the dispensing side of our pharmacy. And that was just as important as any other part um, of the clinical process. We firmly believe that you can't divorce the clinical aspect of it from the product aspect of it, mostly because the product aspect keeps them engaged. There is, it's pretty unique in the, uh, and the whole healthcare system, we're one of the few places that, hey, I have a, a regularly scheduled interaction set up, but if I don't keep it, I don't have my medication. You know, if I skip a doctor's appointment here or there, I'll still be okay. But um, it's that product part. Plus, we also know that on the dispensing side, stuff can happen. You know, we can run into issues with um, cost, with, uh, people not having transportation to come get it complicated regimens. And if you just do the clinical side of it and don't know how they're taking it or if they're continuing to take it and have both sides connected, you're really missing a pretty big block of it. So that was our model. And where it led to us finding new revenue streams is the physicians in this network saw the value and saw the impact and total cost of care that we were making on our patients. We um, studied patients that were enrolled in our program, both pre and post enrollment in our program, and we saw a 12% reduction in total cost of care. Yes, their drug spend went up a little bit. That's because they were more adherent. Um, but the total costs, which included medical, went down 12%. And that was a huge reduction and way more than they were um, expecting. So the physician said, you know what? Um, it's time we expand this program out better grow this a little bit more and we can start doing some share with you on this revenue so you can continue to expand and grow. Um, and that's really where um, we got this whole new revenue model from. Now that's, that is fantastic. And when I look at some of the things that you said, some key terms that I want to make sure our listeners understand. And, and one was you talked about a clinically integrated network um, that the providers uh, became so that they could contract as a group instead of, being individual and worry about some of the legal implications of that as far as being competitors. But now you're clinically integrated network, so you can 
on behalf of the group, go out and contract, which is similar to what we're seeing nationwide with the Community Pharmacy Enhanced Services Network um, USA, which is a clinically network, clinically integrated network of community pharmacists, where we are working together, having core services, and can go out and contract on behalf of the group. And then you've got networks within that that are regional or, or statewide that can do the same thing. And Iowa is a good example of that where I'm at, where we've got um, you know a contract with a payer that's going through CPS at Iowa. So that's one thing I think is important. But I think the other thing is you hit upon as far as the dispensing should not be separated from the clinical services because you don't have the whole picture. We find that out, and we did find that out when we started working with uh, pharmacists embedded um, with cl- within clinics at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, and we worked in particular with internal medicine and also the cardiovascular clinic. In fact, um, in Des Moines this weekend, because we're presenting, I've done some data, and I tell you, John, the other thing that you talked about was the 12% reduction. We're also working with payer, another payer within the state where we're seeing very similar types of reductions, so total cost of care, even though the drug spend might go up a little bit, the overall healthcare costs are going down. So those are things I think you know are important for people to understand that this is a very possible model. It is working. Now, what you have done and what you have done with Thrive Pharmacy Solutions is that your model is saying we're going to put, you know, instead of me being community pharmacy and the university having the embedded pharmacist, you created that whole model. So tell me how, because you talked about expansion. Did you expand to um, outside the area or did you add more pharmacists? Do you put more pharmacists in the clinic? So can you um, expound on that? Yeah. So um, as we continued to grow, um, we started putting more pharmacists into the clinics directly. Um, But, uh, you know, our network of physicians was independent physicians. It has now grown to about 650 independent docs. Um, So it's really hard to put a physician or a pharmacist in every one of the physician practices. Um, what we were doing is putting them in some of the larger aggregated practices where the independent physicians had bound together so they could share resources and stuff. Um, but again, we started to become limited. So what we decided to do was actually go virtual. So we started moving everything away from being embedded into the clinic to being virtually embedded into the clinic. And it really is a part of the care team. So a physician would see a patient and, you know, maybe they needed social services or maybe they needed, um, you know, connection for transportation or something like that, you know, some kind of social service. Or maybe they just needed to go and get an MRI. Um, but if they saw a patient that, hey, you know what, you've got a lot of, you know, meds, a lot of disease states. And I think you need a medication management consult. And I'm going to have my pharmacist, John, give you a call and set up something. So we actually transitioned from that in-person, um, in the clinic, waiting for the business to come to us, waiting for the patients to be sent to us, to being referred virtually. And what we would do then is set up an appointment. Um, we had a scheduler that would set up an appointment for our pharmacist, and we would do it on the phone. Luckily, the, the physicians in these practices had given us access to their EMR, so it made it really easy. Um, you know, we didn't always have EMR access. We had to um, you know, it, it took some trust building for us to show our value, but once we got there and once we continued to expand, um, that's, you know, we had that access and because of the EMR access and because of the trust transfer that came from the physician, I want you to talk to John, my pharmacist, he's going to give you a call and talk to you about your medications. And I need you to take that call. We are actually pretty successful. 
Um, that allowed us to grow much more efficiently um, using fewer resources than embedding a bunch of pharmacists all over the place. We could actually keep them pretty central. So if one pharmacist wasn't available for a call, we could you know, switch it to another pharmacist. We tried to keep it the same, but that really helped us to expand. And those pharmacists were all covered, um, that their salary was all covered by the um, clinically integrated network. Appreciate that. Then let's talk about that centralized um, space or you know, where the, the pharmacists, the clinical pharmacists doing their clinical work and help our viewers because again, with Thrive, uh, pharmacy transformations that we're talking about um, with our company, it's really based upon community-based practitioners. So how can we take what you have done and create this model? And then how do you, how can a community-based pharmacist, one, figure out how they fit into it or create something very similar? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, we grew it that way because of the size of the network um, and the scale of what they wanted us to do. But uh, when you have an independent pharmacy that finds an opportunity to connect with a physician that wants these kind of services or maybe a healthcare group. Um, but that's really um, also why I like what you're doing with your network um, and you know, Luminary for your network is because sometimes you need to get that network brought to you. It's, it's hard to penetrate that. And so sometimes you need a bigger scale. Um, but sometimes you don't. And when you don't need that bigger scale, when you find a physician in your area that, you know, is treating patients, an endocrinologist that's seeing diabetics or cardiologists seeing heart failure patients, and, you know, they, they get frustrated when they don't get the um, service that they need for their patients. When they find out that, hey, you know, you just went into the pharmacy and they told you it was going to be $600 for insulin. All I had to do was put a darn coupon on it. And, you know, so, and plus, I will add, the other thing that we brought to them that is very important that you can, as an independent, bring to the physician is knowledge of what happens to that patient after they leave. And I think this is something that we really need to highlight here, and I um, hadn't talked about this yet, but I think it's really important. The physician sees your typical diabetic uh, when they are first diagnosed every three months. And then, you know, after they kind of get stable, they see them about every six months. Well, when that patient gets newly diagnosed, they go, you know, hey, you're a diabetic. We're going to start you on metformin. Hopefully that's all they need to start them on. They may start them on something even more after that. But the physician has no idea what happens to that patient once they leave. So you've got a newly diagnosed diabetic with an A1C of nine, and they're starting on metformin, maybe on an SGLT2. Um, and they go, they go to the pharmacy, they fill their prescriptions. You know, the, the chain pharmacy or, you know, somebody tells them their SGLT2 is $500 and, you know, they just decide not to get it. But they get the metformin, they start taking it and it gives them horrible GI side effects. And so they just stop it. That physician won't know that that's happened for three months. Whereas in a pharmacy, in a community-based pharmacy, you would know that. One, right away when they don't fill their primary, when you have primary prescription abandonment. But secondarily, you would know when they don't come back in for the refill. When you call that patient, it's time for the refill. And they don't, they don't, hey, no, I quit taking that drug. That physician's got to know that. And that's a great way to build that connection with the physician, letting them know of primary prescription abandonment, letting them know of adherence gaps and the actions that you've taken. 
That's that shows your value to be a part of that network. So when I talk about how community pharmacists can get involved in something like that, that's an easy first step. This is so easy, right? All I need to do is communicate to the physician that, hey, your patient is non-compliant. Here are the steps I've taken. Um, but I wanted you to be aware that, hey, when they come back in for another blood pressure check, they, you know, they've only been taking about half of their ACE inhibitor and half of their beta blocker. You may not want to add a third agent. We just need to get them adhering. That's powerful um, data and powerful communication that go back to the physician. And so when we talk about how you can get started in that, that's a great way to get started. It's data that the physician doesn't have that they need. And when you get to be a part of that and you show your value as you continue to grow, they're going to rely on you to be more involved in their, in their practice and are more willing to say, hey, yep, you know, I want you to take these patients and help me with it. And as we continue to grow into value-based networks, um, where pharmacy is included in that value-based reimbursement, that will set you way ahead. Your results will be significantly better, and um, your physicians will want to point them, those patients, to you, give you a great opportunity. Yeah, and it's very similar to what we found as well, too. So let me give you some of the stats. And, you know, this is something that I haven't done even the full amount of um, pulling of the data um, for all the time we've been doing this, but we've been working on this embedded clinic project now for probably close to two years, but I, I just took the first six months because that was really the pilot is to look at what we could do within six months. And this is the data that I'll be talking about uh, tomorrow, but <clears throat> we had 129 shared patients. Now the, the farm, the way it worked for us is that the pharmacists have been in the clinics. They would identify patients that were coming in for appointments and in advance, um, usually about a few days to a week in, in advance, they would request information from us, progress notes, an updated medication list, whatever the case might be. Then when the patient was seen within the clinic, then they would send us the progress note back. And so we were able to have that good line of communication. You're absolutely correct when you say that people don't know what happens when the patient leaves because we think everybody's going to do what they're supposed to do, but patients are very complex individuals and who have a complex medication regimen and may be confused. And even though you think they've heard you right, may do something else. So we had 129 shared patients. In six months of those 129 shared patients, we found 114 medication-related problems. So 88% of the time with these patients, there was a problem associated with their medication regimen. Now you think about that and think, well, gosh, we thought we had it covered on both ends, but we didn't. And if you look at it, adherence represented about a third, which is pretty common with the general population. But other things that we saw was meds didn't match. So either mm -hmm. they told the physician or the physician told the patient to stop the medication. They didn't stop it. It continued on. You know, no one was catching that <clears throat> until we provide that information. Um, High-risk medications were identified on our end and sent that to the uh, pharmacist embedded in the clinic. And they said, yep, that's a good point. We should see if we can taper them off that medication. We found patients who need additional therapy. And that was about 11 of those patients, so 8.5%. Wrong med with patients that represented another six or 4.7%, wrong dose was almost 12% of the patients. That's by pharmacists working together. It would have been missed if there's only one half of the equation, whether it's the community pharmacist or the embedded pharmacist, <clears throat> excuse me, because patients do do things that we're not aware of and they're confused and they may not know what they're supposed to be doing. 
and no one's followed up. And you're right, there's this gap between when they were first were seen by the physician or the prescriber and their follow-up. The importance of that community-based practitioner to me enriches the process because they can be the eyes and the ears following that patient because of the accessibility. So you want to allude on that at all? Yeah, you know, um, it makes me think uh, 88%. You, you think here, like, man, there's something broken in our system. And there is. There, are, there definitely are some broken parts to it. But what I think it is also is that we don't have people work at the top of their license in every instance. And that includes a physician. Um, as part of this, when we were initially embedding pharmacists into the clinics, I actually went into several physicals with um, physicians and their patients. Um, you know, they wanted me to establish rapport with their patients and things like that. And, you know, you're seeing a diabetic and you've got 10 minutes with that patient to go over everything that you need to do with that patient. And you get a quarter of the way through with things that you need to say. And then the patient says, oh, by the way, my knee's really hurting. And oh, by the way, I've got this going on. And you really just can't cover everything that you need. And so where we really started to um, win physicians over was when we worked at the top of our license so they could work at the top of theirs. We handled the med reconciliation for them. We would make the med recommendations and dose um, adjustments for them. You know, it took, it took education and it took um, trust. But, you know, in that 10 minutes, the physician could then focus on the other things and would just come out and say, hey, they're a diabetic. I want to start them on metformin and an SGLT2. Can you titrate the dose for me, get it started, and explain the meds to the patient? And okay, now we've had a clean transition from the physician to the pharmacist, and it just works so well. Um, but you're right, we would catch so many things, and it's not because the physicians were bad, and it wasn't because the pharmacists were bad. It's just because um, there's so many working parts in our healthcare system. And sometimes things just don't get addressed. And that's why um, we really felt that, you know, when we would go through this, we would look in the EMR and say, you know what, we need to not add another agent. We just need to maximize this agent before we start adding more meds on to the patient. So sometimes we didn't, you know, drive up drug costs. We were focused on that. And having the um, pharmacist in a good connection with embedded within that whole healthcare team and the connection to the dispensing end, because now you can address adherence, you can address side effects and still see it. Um, that's where you really get your most bang for your buck and really can improve the healthcare system and drive down total cost of care. So tell me about that as far as by driving down total cost of care and then the revenue share that you talked about. What is possible, you think, in that model that you talk about as far as revenues being generated that can be shared amongst the community-based practitioner with the, the clinic, the embedded pharmacist that they're embedded in within the clinic. Is there enough money out there that it can support that kind of a system? You know, so that's a great question. So there, I really see two funding mechanisms. Um, the, the first funding mechanism I see is around uh, Medicare Advantage uh, and taking advantage of that. Uh, Medicare Advantage is, you know, they, they get that capitated rate. They want to, they're, wanting to make sure that they stay under that. And I, uh, we were working with a Medicare Advantage plan that's based here in um, where we are. And I didn't realize that they were already spending um, upwards of $30 per member per month on pharmacy, quote, pharmacy services. 
And what did that account for? Well, it accounted for somebody sitting in a room somewhere, making a phone call to patients and reaching out to them and reminding them to refill their medications. Like that was what their pharmacy services was. Now I know there was a lot more to it that they did, but we convinced them that, hey, our model works and we're, and we're better at that. And we'll, we'll go in and get better results if you want to give us a trial on that. And they did. So they came in and they gave us a, what we call a per member per month. And it's just a, it's a flat fee that they would give to us. And we were responsible for those patients, um, whether we filled for them or not. Um, we had to ensure adherence and we had to, um, also we had to ensure not only adherence, but appropriate therapy, high risk meds and, you know, outcome measures like um, initial clinical marker outcome measures like A1C, blood pressure, things like that. So uh, they paid us the pharmacy services fee. And when we would reach out to the patients, most of them were seen by patients in our net, our physicians in our network. We also would onboard them into our program. So not only were we getting paid for the prescriptions and reimbursed for that, but we were getting literally a clinical fee to perform um, our you know pharmacy services for those patients. So I really see that that's a good first funding lever um, is getting with an insurance um, payer somehow and <clears throat> using their their money, their per member per month or their their fees in there to replace the pharmacy services that they're already doing. Now, yeah. I know in, in the world of vertical integration, it's become much more difficult with Aetna and CVS, and, um, but there are still payers out there. Healthcare is still local. And that's the one advantage that community pharmacies have is, you know, yes, there is a national Aetna, but there's also the local Aetna president that is responsible for selling to, you know, this employer group of 250, or this employer group of 50, um, there's there's ways to get involved in that. Yeah, the second, just, go ahead. I was gonna say, John, it's not just the big, the, the employer or the uh, insurance plans and the local plans, but the direct contract you can do with a local employer who's self-insured as well. That's exactly right. That's the other end, right? So they're paying pharmacy services um, to, you know, a PBM, um, potentially as a separate carve out or through that, um, but there is no reason that an independent um, employer group couldn't create a deal. We've actually set up a few um, on our own as well, where we were able to take care of those patients directly. And we had agreed upon services. And this is what we would do. And this is the fee that we would be paid for those services. Um, so there's there's absolutely lots of avenues to get that. Um, and then revenue share also. So there is no reason that uh, within a network of physicians that are in a value-based network, that if you provided services for them, um, that they could not cover that services cost, pay for those pharmacists to help out um, and help take care of their patients so they can drive total, total cost of care. Just to be honest with you, it does not take a lot of ER visits or hospitalization visit um, or hospitalizations prevented to pay for the cost of the pharmacy services. Yes, and, and I think those two things are important that we talked about as far as the revenue. It's that it can be a per member per month, and it can be a revenue share. So the business model can work on this, and we're seeing it within the work that we do in Iowa, and obviously you're seeing it from where you're doing it, but also in regional places around the country. So I want our listeners to understand this is real. It's happening, and there's opportunity. John, I'm excited that you are actually 
um, coming back or that you are back with McKesson as vice president for pharmacy retail operations. I think you can take that wealth of knowledge that you have and help the community-based practitioners out there find these new business models. So I'm hoping that's part of your your goal as far as coming back. That's actually my number one goal. I honestly do think that we are at a, a turning point in our profession and at a good spot where we can take advantage of this changing market. And uh, that's my goal is I want to make sure community pharmacy is viable for the next hundred years. All right. We got similar goals. So John, thanks very much for your time today. This was a wealth of information for our listeners. And I, I love the background that you provide and the excitement and the passion. So thank you very much for your time today. Absolutely. Thanks, Randy. The Thrive Subscribe podcast is brought to you by Thrive Pharmacy Transformations. Visit us online at tptransformations.com, where you can join our free community to inspire you, challenge you, and transform your pharmacy practice.